Hi everyone, Drew Proud here. On today's mini episode, we're featuring a few golden nuggets on the topic of longevity, muscle, and protein from one of our most popular interviews this year so far with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon was recently on the podcast advocating for her approach, which is called muscle-centric medicine. And we had a fantastic conversation, but I know a lot of people missed the gems inside of it because it was a longer interview. Well, we've shortened it in today's mini episode and brought you the key takeaways that are super important, especially for women, women in protein and women who are considering and focused on optimizing their health for longevity. You're going to learn why that's an important part of Dr. Lyon's approach and advocacy work. The next thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be sharing some takeaways talking about the connection between muscle and metabolic health. We've done so many episodes on metabolic health. If you want to improve your metabolic health, you got to build up your muscle. And we're also talking about some of the myths around dietary protein from Dr. Gabrielle Lyon's perspective. She has a very unique perspective and she's going to be talking about some of the myths versus some of the facts from her perspective when it comes to protein. By the way, if you eat breakfast or if you skip breakfast, there's also a conversation between Dr. Lyon and I on that topic. A lot of gems here and we've taken the best of a two-hour-plus interview, and we've shortened it down in a simple mini-episode for you to enjoy today. Let us know what you thought about this segment and these shorter episodes by leaving a review, or better yet, share this episode with a friend who wants to focus on optimizing their health for longevity, being the happiest, healthiest version of them to a ripe old age. Let's dive in, right? Yeah. It's been a while since our last episode, mm. so it's important to revisit your central core thesis about the importance of muscle when it comes to our health. Yeah. Share that message with our audience. Okay. So the main focus of my message and my driving mission is muscle is the organ of longevity. And right now, everybody's focused on adiposity. They're focused on being and losing weight. And that is really the core central theme that we see. What if I told you we are not over fat, but we are under-muscled as a society? And the reality is one of the reasons obesity is so hard to treat is because fundamentally we are looking at the wrong problem. And issues like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, these are diseases of skeletal muscle first. Boom. This is a, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. And we're going to unpack it all. Yeah. Now, let me start off with something that you shared. Okay. Right? It's that you were saying that we're not over fat, we're under muscle. Yeah. Now, can it be both? And asking the context of the pandemic and everything mm -hmm. that we saw with people that had poor metabolic health, yeah. people that were obese, being a higher risk, passing away, unfortunately. Yeah. Isn't it a little bit of both? So it is a little bit of both. And when I think about the idea of core treatment and symptomology. Obesity is a symptom. It's not at the root. If individuals have healthy skeletal muscle, their survivability across all illnesses, which is very rare to be able to say that in medicine. So I am saying, Drew, if you have healthy skeletal muscle, if you have enough, if you have enough body armor, you are not only going to be able to survive through issues that happen during the pandemic, 
but also you'll be metabolically healthy. And I know that that's a core theme of yours. You talk a lot about metabolic health. And in my mind, when we think about skeletal muscle, we have to think about what it does. So let's get into that. And yeah. let's talk about it for especially our audience, of which course. is primarily female. But which shout which out to I the actually men. think that that's amazing and love that. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Shout out to everybody who's listening, <laughs> of course. Yes. But for our audience and through the different stages of yeah. life, how... And can you give some examples of how important muscle is and what it actually helps people do, especially for women? Yes. Well, of course, this happens to be my favorite topic. When you think about muscle, we often think about it in the fitness realm. And of course, that's what we hear. You think about bodybuilders, you think about protein, and really that's a conversation that is typically thought of in their 20s, right? And it's so interesting because muscle, and we're talking about skeletal muscle now, is so much more valuable than that. The idea of locomotion and physical fitness is one small aspect of what muscle does. Muscle is actually, and by the way, makes up 40% of your body. It is the largest organ system in the body. Skeletal muscle is an organ system. And we must, if we want to change the trajectory of how people are aging and what we are seeing and obesity, we must address skeletal muscle as the organ system that it is. Now, I know it sounds like a very basic question. No, no but... question is basic because we do have to lay the foundation of what muscle does, how do we stimulate it, how it relates to health and wellness. Of course, of course. Yeah. That's what you're here to do. Yes. So you're saying skeletal muscle. Yeah. What muscle is not skeletal muscle if you can break that down? So smooth muscle, things that you don't have voluntary control over. Got it. You know, um, and the of course is uh, cardiac muscle. Mm -hmm. um, and smooth muscle, and then the skeletal muscle, which you have direct control over. And again, just mention a few of those. So like a uterus. A uterus would be a smooth muscle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. No, we are not talking about this. We are talking about muscles that have voluntary control that, like, for example, your bicep or your quadricep, things that you can move. Now, we know, and we've talked about on this podcast yeah. before, that one of the leading indicators of, uh, you know, old age is mm. grip strength. Yep. Right? And that's one of the greatest predictors of uh, your likelihood of uh, death, I believe. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. And so we understand that, especially as people get older, mm -hmm. having muscle is actually what protects their bones yes. from fracture, from breaking. And when older people, especially, mm -hmm. break a bone, I was just talking to a friend the other day, her mom yeah. unfortunately fell down while playing pickleball and she's a walker, Her friend, my friend was saying, but mm. she doesn't really do a lot of muscle boning activities, yeah. no resistant training. She fell in a very simple fall mm. ended up shattering her ankle. And my heart goes out to her and her mom. It was yes. a very sad story. And in the hospital, like a lot of people get into the hospital, they yeah. start to rapidly decline, especially yes. when they're bedridden. You right? know, it's really interesting. And I'm going to share a very scary statistic. For women over the age of 65, if they fall, 50% of them will never walk again. Wow. Say that one more time, because that's like mind-blowing. <laughs> For a woman, 65 or older, if she falls, there's a 50% chance she will never walk again. So what that would look like what? She is bedridden or wheelchair-bound? Yeah, she, yes. I mean, you know, there's an extreme risk of death. Oftentimes, people end up having to go to assisted living. There are very tragic and predictable outcomes that happen if you don't address skeletal muscle midlife. And again, 
there's multiple things that skeletal muscle does, which I think we should discuss as it relates to metabolism. And also there's a natural decline in skeletal muscle as we age. Yeah, It's really interesting. There's a physiological process that happens, uh, one of which is called anabolic resistance. And it's this idea that skeletal muscle is actually a nutrient sensor. It mm. senses protein. And the efficiency by which it does that decreases as we age. Which is why it's harder to put on muscle as we age. And also there's a decrease in hormones. For women, especially during perimenopause, menopause, There, that is the time in which they have the most rapid decline in muscle mass. And we're more likely, I've heard you on many interviews mm. talk about, we're more likely to become insulin resistant. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Because when we lower, yeah. just explain how that works okay. because we've done so many episodes yes. on metabolic health. I love this. And we always talk about glucose monitors right. and the benefit right. and looking at your fasting insulin. But make the connection between muscle okay. and I would love to. I'm turning 40 years old and I can honestly say that I've never felt better. So many people have this looming fear around getting older because they think it has to come with chronic disease, losing their mobility, maybe losing their agility and losing their mental acuity, which means not being able to do all the things they love anymore. If that were the case, I would be worried about getting older too, but it doesn't have to be that way. I learned that through the power of epigenetics, I can turn off my aging genes and turn on my longevity genes simply by living a healthy lifestyle, optimizing my diet and taking the right supplements. I'm here to tell you that it is possible to get older and to truly stay young on the inside, but sometimes we need a little help knowing exactly how to do it. That's why I'm super excited to tell you guys about Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by top scientists from acclaimed universities in the field of aging, genetics, and biometrics. Its mission is to help people live long, healthy, productive lives by optimizing their bodies from the inside out. Inside Tracker's cutting edge technology analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness tracker data, and gives you actionable, personalized, that's the keyword, personalized tips on how you can improve your health span. Their new inner age test allows you to see how your inner age compares with your chronological age and gives you a longevity-focused plan with science-backed recommendations to help you make sure your best days are still ahead of you. And now you can connect Inside Tracker to your Apple Watch to unlock deeper, more precise insights into your personalized health plan with real-time exercise resting heart rate and sleep data synced within your inside tracker plan you can truly wear your health on your sleeve right now inside tracker is offering my podcast community 20 percent off just go to insidetracker.com slash drew that's d-h-r-u to get your discount code and to try it for yourself that's inside tracker.com slash d-h-r-u for 20 percent off this episode is brought to you by higher dose Regular sauna use is a game changer. Saunas can reduce inflammation, improve detoxification, support overall stress levels, and increase energy production down to the freaking cellular level. But the thing is, saunas can be expensive, and not everyone has the extra room for them in their home. That's why I'm excited to tell you about the portable higher-dose infrared sauna blanket. It's an affordable way to get all the benefits of sauna use, including supporting the process of autophagy or cellular cleanup, which kills off our body's old zombie cells that hang around and take up a lot of space and energy. Killing these old zombie cells is key when it comes to longevity and optimal health. Did I mention that higher dose blankets are also low in EMF and made of premium non-toxic materials that keep you safe and cozy throughout the sauna season? 
Just another reason why my team and I love them. If you've been hearing about the benefits of regular sauna use, but you just haven't pulled the trigger, Higher Dose Infrared Sauna Blanket is designed for you. So jump right in. Right now, you can get 15% off your own infrared sauna blanket at higherdose.com with my exclusive promo code DREW15. That's higher, H-I-G-H-E-R, dose, D-O-S-E, dot com with the code D-H-R-U-15. That's DREW15, D-H-R-U-15. Now let's get back to today's episode. I believe that obesity is a disease of skeletal muscle. And here is why. Insulin resistance, which you've talked about probably in many podcasts, insulin is the peptide hormone that is necessary to move glucose out of the bloodstream into cells. And glucose is very interesting because it's a double-edged sword. We need it, yet it is toxic. So skeletal muscle is the site for 80 plus percent of glucose disposal. 80 to maybe 90% of glucose disposal is skeletal muscle. It's used by those muscles. Yes. Which is why, just to connect the dots for people listening, if you eat like a big meal and then you go on a fast-paced walk or you're doing like some curls or some squats or whatever, that actually helps lower your blood sugar. Yes. Well, initially you might see a little spike, but your blood sugar on average comes down afterwards. Skeletal muscle is really at the focal point of metabolic regulation. And most importantly, insulin resistance starts in skeletal muscle first. So let's think about that. So it's 40% of our body weight. It's the site for glucose disposal. And it's the site where insulin resistance starts first. Think about muscle as a suitcase. If you fill it up, right, if you're eating and you fill it up and you don't unpack it by training, then what happens? You can only stuff so much in and then it the rest, fatty acids, their increase in glucose, it goes back into the bloodstream. That is why I believe the diseases of insulin resistance, obesity, and these issues that go alongside of them begin in skeletal muscle. And it's actually in the literature. Yet we, for whatever reason, have not focused on skeletal muscle as the focal point, as the pinnacle. It is always a periphery. And really in fitness, there's this huge gap between exercise and fitness and muscle as this metabolic organ. Very superficially, we kind of divide the two. But ultimately, if you care about these diseases of aging, then you must optimize skeletal muscle and you must transition the way in which you eat, the way in which you train as you age. Wow. It's fantastic to get a chance to go through all that because for a lot of people, I think you would say, which is why you are so focused on your message. You've launched a podcast, by the way. Yep. What's the name of the podcast? The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. We'll link to the show notes. (laughs) You have a book coming out in October. Mm -hmm. It's an important message because it feels like it makes sense when you're listening to it. Now, people are trying to understand all the behind the scenes. Right. And they're also trying to compare it to some of the other content that they're hearing out there. One of the ones yeah. that people hear, mm. which would be a great opportunity to just bring up early, is that actually too much protein in the diet, which how does muscle get made? Protein right. is a key element yeah. of it. Not the only element, but a key element of it has been linked to a lot of different 
chronic diseases. Let's right. just touch on that. We'll dive deeper into it later okay. on. But let's just touch on that for a second. Well, I now I'm a trained geriatrician from WashU, which is a very excellent institution. And one of the things and one of the most important aspects of health, longevity, aging has been protein. And there is a lot of myths about dietary protein, none of which, by the way, have been validated. Observational data, epidemiology data does one thing. And typically, when we think about the hierarchy of evidence, we take epidemiology and then we do randomized control human trials. And what we know is that based on the randomized control human trials, that now the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is the bare minimum of protein per day. So that is the bare minimum set to prevent deficiencies. It is not the maximum. And I would just like to bring up this example of vitamin C. Vitamin C, do you know the RDA of vitamin C? I don't know. 60, 60 milligrams, very, very low. Now, if you were getting sick or you needed an extra boost, would you hesitate to take more vitamin C? Not at all. In fact, you would be like, meh, I'm not feeling great. Maybe I'll take some vitamin C, right? Well, the RDA there is clearly that it's 60 milligrams to prevent deficiencies, but most people, nearly everybody, would be willing to say that is not a maximum. Yet when we look at dietary protein that's set at 0.8 grams per kilogram per day, people say, no, 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 that's the maximum. I am using this example to highlight the huge dichotomy that we have between nutrients and then this macronutrient protein, which is arguably the elephant in the room, right? It is the black sheep of the macronutrient family. The data would support that nearly double that is what is more optimal. In human randomized control trials, we know that optimizing for protein, those people always do better. They have better body composition, they have healthier lean muscle mass, they have better insulin and glucose control. These are very important measurable outcomes that we know. We also know that it improves satiation and it protects tissue. And in fact, the body, there's protein turnover that happens about 300 grams a day. We have to account for that. And not only that, but protein is essential. And there's never any evidence, there has not been, to my knowledge, nor in the literature, to support higher levels of dietary protein having any kind of negative effect. Yeah. Ever. Ever. But epidemiology, it's really interesting. So if you look at the relative risk, so the relative risk is what we consider in medicine, when it is two or, or above two, we consider it clinically significant. So we'll say smoking and lung cancer the relative risk would be 12, okay? And this is just based on the data. So they have looked at protein and the relative risk of protein intake and any kind of illness is 1.2. So according to the evidence, it's not clinically significant. And I'm really glad you bring up this point because the evidence doesn't support the narrative. Now. I thought I heard you say earlier in the interview that breakfast is kind of like one the of those things. The most important meal. Right. The, the first most important meal. meal. We should say the first meal of the day is the most important. The first meal of the day. And, and yeah. I've had a lot of women come on mm -hmm. the podcast and talk about how, you know, 
women's needs are a little bit different than men mm-hmm. and they're on the infradian rhythm and other mm. stuff. And again, there's variation in individuals, even within genders that are there. Yeah. And how often uh, there can be pros and cons, especially if a woman is in her prime fertility years, mm. right? For fasting, you mean? For, for fasting or eating like a later window of like mm. lunch is the first meal. Any hot yeah. takes on that? Yeah, sure. So let's talk about the first meal of the day and why that's so important because this really services everybody. First meal of the day is most important whenever you have that because it is the di- the meal that you are primed for. You have not eaten. You're in a catabolic state. You are fasted, essentially. So the definition of fasting is anything greater than eight hours without eating, right? So if we say, hey, Drew, got to go get your fasting blood work, that would mean eight hours or more of not eating. That first meal of the day is priming your body to get your muscle, right, and your blood sugar regulation, right? The way in which you do that, this is a 100% mostly fail-proof way. If you get high protein, and I would argue between 40 and 50 grams that first meal, you are going to set yourself up for metabolic regulation for the rest of the day. And here's why. Number one, you are going to stimulate, regardless of your age, muscle protein synthesis. Whether you are 20 or you are 65 or you are my dad at 74, you will stimulate muscle protein synthesis. You must hit that first opportunity. The other part is protein is very satiating. And there's work by Heather Leidy and they looked at brain fMRIs. It's almost as if protein augments willpower. It releases certain gut hormones that really help with satiation. Also, it has a high thermic effect of food meaning it takes energy to utilize it. So if people are concerned about weight management, optimizing for muscle, this is the way to do it. It takes 20% of the calories. So for example, if you have 100 calories of protein, and I'm making this very black and white, nobody just eats protein, right? Unless you're maybe just eating egg whites. But for every 100, so if you eat 100 grams of protein, then 20% of those calories, so 100 calories, sorry, of protein, 20% of those calories will be utilized to metabolize that protein. So your net caloric is 80 calories. So by leveraging the dietary choices, number one, you're stimulating muscle. You must hit that opportunity. You are being able to balance blood sugar. Again, if you train the body to be accustomed to eating protein, your body will not require external carbohydrate sources in that way you become very efficient. Your blood sugar will remain stable. So that first meal of the day is most important. Again, and also carbohydrates, I think about carbohydrates in a meal threshold amount. And I recommend people do not exceed between 40 and 50 grams. And this is just a great take-home point for your listener, between 40 and 50 grams of carbohydrates per meal. And the reason is because we cannot at rest, unless you're out exercising, dispose of more. And when you think about glucose disposal, you think about muscle, you think about what's required for liver and gut and and all of these processes, brain. So, and again, the definition of diabetes is a two-hour blood, you know, blood sugar seeing over greater than 120. So in order to manage blood sugar, we are looking at a 40 to 50 grams or less of carbohydrates per meal. Got it. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question. 
But yeah. I wanted to make sure that there's some great takeaways for your listener, especially the woman. 50, 40 to 50 grams of protein per meal. Knock that out. Get that right. And any thoughts on, you know, how soon that happens? Because you, I know it's a unique day for you. You were on one podcast. Yep. <laughs> you're on another podcast. So I know a lot of times when I'm yeah. not eating, I feel a little bit more focused and stuff. But do you think that there is some importance or truth, and it's okay if you don't, yeah. for, you know, making sure that women, again, in their yeah. prime fertile years, fertility years, whether they're interested in having yes. kids or not, you know, typically like you hear a lot of conversation mm. in the space of fasting of like, I'm going to skip breakfast and right. I'm going to go, my first meal is typically like a lunch meal. Right. Right. Is that more detrimental to women? Do you have a hot take on that? Yeah. Let's think about what the body has in store to manage elevated levels of blood sugar. So the body has one way to deal with glucose. That's insulin. One way. The body has multiple ways to deal with low blood sugar, whether it's glucagon, whether it is cortisol, whether it is growth hormone. So if an individual's blood sugar is getting too low, you do see increases in cortisol. You do see increases in counter-regulatory stress hormones. That being said, if someone is trying to get pregnant, I personally do not recommend fasting. It is an added stress. Just you know, from an anecdotal perspective, I had two babies in <laughs> two years or whatever, two and a half years. I don't necessarily recommend that. But the... <laughs> Um, I was not fasting during that time. I wanted to eliminate that kind of external stress on my body. And also for my patients, I don't recommend them fasting if they're trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a stressor. There's one other thing that uh, has seems to be some poll, you know, mm. again, these are observational studies, yeah, yeah. so we have to weigh them out. Which means they're low quality data. Okay, got yeah. it. Is there one, so one takeaway, because it's mm -hmm. good to, to talk about this, is that... Um, some of them seem to show that people who eat breakfast, mm -hmm. right? Again, yep. not getting into the quality. We're not talking about cereal and other things like that. We're talking yep. about higher quality, what would be considered maybe more like a European style mm -hmm. breakfast, right? Charcuterie board or some cheeses or things like that. And maybe some, you know, a yeah. little, little bit of food in the morning do better. And would you say that we just don't have the data because observational is too low quality, we can't come yeah. to that conclusion. I think that it depends on what health outcome we're looking at. Is it that they do better because their blood sugar is maintained? Do we have an idea of what the um, macronutrients are at that meal? I think that if a meal is high quality protein, I think that's amazing. But in terms of, again, we always have to think, well, what is the health outcome we're looking at? in that yeah. way. But uh, I also am not against fasting and I'm certainly not against breakfast. Again, I believe that we do have to think about, you know, protein is very important in a 24-hour period, what you are getting. And then the second layer to that is protein in a discrete meal threshold, which is really important to understand, which again, the science is there, but the recommendations have not yet caught up. That is going to, believe, to be what I believe to be the future when they start understanding that meals are, there's an amino acid requirement per meal. So 24 hour period of dietary protein, understanding that meal distribution is really important. Whether someone is eating breakfast or not eating breakfast or wanting to get pregnant or not wanting to get pregnant, we have to account for the essential need for protein. <laughs>